You're listening to the Grace Point Northwest podcast. We hope that you will be encouraged and built up in your relationship with Jesus as you hear the preaching and teaching of God's Word. If Grace Point Northwest is not your home church, it is our heart that this podcast will be supplemental and not a substitute to you belonging to a local church in your community. If we can help you get connected to a church in your community, please let us know. Now we hope you enjoy this message from our Sunday gathering. Well, good morning to you once again. Uh, My name is Stephen. I'm one of the pastors here, uh, and it's an honor uh, to be with you to open the word with you this morning. Uh, If you're new here, uh, we're going to be in the Bible a lot today. If you don't have a Bible, that's okay. We got you covered. We have free Bibles available for you uh, on the entryway in both English and in Spanish. You're welcome to take that home with you. It's free, uh, no charge. That's just our gift to you. We just want you to have a copy. Um, For those of you who don't know, uh, I've lived in Vegas for a little about, about four years now. And there's one thing that I have noticed when I talk to people from Vegas. They either really love Vegas or they really hate Vegas. And now, I've never found too many people that's like, eh, it's okay, you know, I, I could take it or leave it. Um, but it's this way with a lot of things. You know, people either really love the Android operating system or they hate the Android operating system. They either love sauerkraut or they hate sauerkraut. They either love baseball or they just don't appreciate a thinking man's game. But <laughs> if you've been with us for a while, uh, you know that we've been in the Gospel of John. And up until this point, It's been following Jesus around as he's been teaching people, interacting, uh, performing miracles. And it hasn't been until really the last chapter that we start to see lines being drawn on people's opinions of Jesus. People are starting to really either love Jesus or hate Jesus. We're going to be looking at verses uh, 1 through 24 of chapter 7 today. Uh, But before we do, I'd just like to pause and ask the Holy Spirit uh, to help us understand this passage. So would you pray with me today? Heavenly Father, we come before you as a church. We are humbled by just your wisdom and your power. Lord, we know that your ways are not our ways. You know, your thoughts are not our thoughts. But we thank you for, we thank you for the Bible. We thank you for revealing yourself in Scripture to us so that we can know you and we can follow you. And I ask for just your help. Would you send your Holy Spirit as you promised to help us to understand these words? Would we humble ourselves before you? And I pray that these words would transform us and empower us to preach this gospel to the nations. Praise your name. Amen. So in your Bible, uh, you may have a heading at the top of this chapter that says, Jesus at the Feast of Booths. Now, if you don't know what the Feast of Booths is, I just want to touch on that really quick. Um, There are eight feasts that God laid out in the Old Testament for his people to follow. If you want to uh, learn more about what each of those feasts are, you can read them for yourselves in Leviticus 23. But in short, the purpose of these feasts were to remind God's people of his faithfulness in a particular situation. One of the more well-known feasts is the Passover feast. This was obviously to remind God's people of his faithfulness in protecting the firstborn sons of Israel during their exodus from Egypt. And the Feast of Booze, which actually lasted um, eight days, it was to remind God's people of his provisions in the wilderness. They would travel from place to place, and when they would stop, God would have them construct these temporary shelters made out of um, wood or sticks or or whatever they they could find. And actually, God himself had a temporary shelter during the wilderness, too, called the Tabernacle. And actually, another name for the Feast of Booze is called the Feast of Tabernacles. 
So that's your, that's your 10,000 foot overview of what uh, the Jewish feasts are. So uh, follow along now as I read from John chapter 7, starting in verse 1. After this, Jesus went about in Galilee. He would not go about in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Now the Jews' feast of booze was at hand. So his brothers said to him, Leave here and go to Judea, that your disciples also may see the works you are doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. For not even his brothers believed in him. Jesus said to them, My time has not yet come, but your time is always here. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify about it that its works are evil. You go up to the feast. I am not going up to this feast, for my time has not yet fully come. After saying this, he remained in Galilee. And I'll pause right there. because I find Jesus' brothers kind of humorous here. Basically what they're doing is they're kind of giving Jesus some career advice. Now, if you remember the last chapter, Jesus was talking to a crowd of people about how they can be saved and how they, how they needed to eat his flesh and drink his blood. And after that, it said that people turned away from him and rejected him. And so basically what they're saying here is, hey, Jesus, you know, you can bounce back from this. You know, let's just, let's just get our head on. You're going to be okay. You know, you've had some good publicity. You've got some good miracles. You still have a little bit of following. But this is what you got to do. You got to go up to the Feast of Booths where anybody who's anybody is going to be there. There's going to be tons of people. You go up there, you do some of your miracles, you're going to get back on the map, and you're going to be famous in no time. But, um, now you may be thinking, uh, yeah, that makes sense. You know, that's, that's good advice. But there were two problems. The first problem was, we see here, that the Jews were seeking to kill Jesus. So going to a feast where a bunch of Jewish people were going to be there probably wasn't a good idea. And the second problem is that it says that his brothers didn't believe him. They didn't know what Jesus was trying to do. They weren't, they weren't on the same page with his agenda. They didn't understand his message. And I don't really even think that they fully understood that he was the son of God. So what does, what does Jesus say? Look back at verse 6. It says, My time has not yet come, but your time is always here. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me, because I testify about it, that its works are evil. Jesus is saying that his lack of fame isn't because that he hasn't shown himself to the world. He's saying it's because he has an unpopular message. He's saying, I don't think you understand what I'm, what I'm doing here, because if I tell people what they need to hear, they're going to hate me. I'm here to tell people that they're evil. They're not going to take too kindly to that. Now, on a side note, it's important to understand here that Jesus isn't avoiding the feast because he's afraid to die. He's not afraid, uh, he's not afraid to get killed. He's not trying to dodge the Jews and, and hope that maybe he can get away you know, unharmed. And Jesus knew before the beginning of time that the Jews were going to kill him, and he willingly accepted that. But he also knew that there was a time and a place for that to happen, and this day wasn't it. So let's keep reading in verse 10. It says, but after this, after his brothers had gone up to the feast, then he also went up, not publicly, but in private. The Jews were looking for him at the feast, saying, where is he? And there is much muttering about him among the people. While some said, he is a good man, and others said, no, he's leading people astray. Yet for fear of the Jews, no one spoke openly about him. So Jesus does end up going to the feast. Uh, as I said, the feast was eight days long, so probably maybe a couple days later, sometime in the middle, it says, we don't know exactly. 
But he doesn't go up like his brothers suggest. He goes in quietly. He goes in under the radar, not to make a scene. And you can start to see what I was talking about a minute ago, about the lines are starting to be drawn by people either loving Jesus or hating Jesus. Verse 14. About the middle of the feast, Jesus went up to the temple and began teaching. The Jews therefore marveled, saying, How is it this man has learning when he has never studied? So Jesus answered them, My teaching is not mine, but it is but his who sent me. If anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I am speaking of my own authority. The one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory, but the one who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true, and in him there is no falsehood. Now, Jesus is a very unassuming person here, but he taught with so much wisdom that people didn't understand it. They, they knew that he didn't have any formal education. It didn't make sense how he could carry on these, these philosophical conversations with the religious elite. It would be like if I went down to the Raiders Stadium that they're building down there and gave them advice about how to put on you know, the trusses and the pillars and stuff. You know, I'm not an architect. That would be ridiculous. But the key here is that Jesus is not seeking his own glory. He's seeking the glory of his heavenly Father. He's not promoting his own agenda. He's promoting his Father's agenda. And once again, here we see the disconnect between Jesus and his brothers. Jesus' brothers thought that he wanted to be famous and popular, but he didn't. He came as a messenger of truth. Let's continue verse 19. Has not Moses given you the law? Yet none of you keeps the law. Why do you seek to kill me? The crowd answered, you have a demon. Who is seeking to kill you? Now, I love that the people asking surprise, acting surprised here. They're like, what? You're crazy. No one's trying to kill you. But we know just from a few verses ago, they had some kind of idea because no one was speaking openly about Jesus for fear of the Jews. And here we start to see what Jesus is talking about when he says that he testifies that the world is evil. And he just comes out and says it. He says, none of you keep the law. Verse 21. Jesus answered them, I did one work and you all marveled at it. Moses gave you circumcision, not that it's from Moses, but from the fathers, and you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. If on the Sabbath a man receives circumcision so that the law of Moses may not be broken, are you angry with me because on the Sabbath I made a whole man's body well? Do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. Now this, um, this instance that Jesus is talking about, healing a man on the Sabbath, is probably referring to a few chapters earlier in chapter 5 when when he healed a man on the Sabbath. But there are two competing Old Testament laws here that Jesus brings into his illustration. The first one is that there's to be no work on the Sabbath. The Sabbath was to be a day of rest. And the second was that every baby boy on the eighth day of his life it was supposed to be circumcised. But what happens when that eighth day just so happens to fall on the Sabbath? I don't know about you, but I don't think circumcising an eight-day-old baby is in the spirit of rest. And so Jesus, the Jews would make an exception for that. And so Jesus is making the argument that if you're okay with circumcising on the Sabbath, why aren't you okay with me healing someone's whole body on the Sabbath? You see, now we're getting to the heart of Jesus' message. The Jews followed the law so closely 
but they felt that their righteousness depended on it. They thought that if they followed it to a T, that they would be deserving of Jesus' favor of entrance into heaven. They would be holy. And Jesus comes in and pointing to the fact that they haven't kept the law. See, they wanted to condemn Jesus, but actually Jesus condemns them. And they didn't realize that it was not Jesus' intent to liberalize the law, but to actually fulfill the law, fulfill what it was meant to do, which was bring renewal and redemption to God's people. Matthew 5.17, Jesus says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law of the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Now, unfortunately, this legalistic mentality of the law is still alive today. If you think that God's commands are, are here to live by so that you would at least have a shot at being holy, have a shot at earning his love and favor, then you're thinking the same way that the Jews in this story did. If you think God put his law into place, thinking, he's saying, here it is, good luck, hope you can keep it, hope some of you are just perfect enough, then you're missing the whole point of why Jesus came. You've heard the saying that laws were made to be broken. Well, in this case, it kind of is. God gave us the law knowing full well that we would never keep it. He never held out any hope that maybe a few of us would be perfect enough to obey the law and be deserving entrance into heaven. He gave us the law for the very reason that we would know that we are sinners. Listen to the Apostle Paul. Romans 7, starting in chapter 7. It says, What then shall we say? That the law is sin? By no means. Yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known that it was covet. I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had said, you shall not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive, and I died. The very commandment that promised that that promised life proved to be death to me. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me, and through it killed me. So the law is holy, and the commandment is holy, and the righteous, and righteous is good. Did that which is good then bring death to me? By no means. It was sin producing death in me through what is good, in order that sin might be shown to be sin, and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold under sin. You see, had it not been for God's law, we had never known that we were sinners. We never known that we were separated from God. We still would have been separated. We still would have been sinners. We just wouldn't have known that. Now some say, well, it's kind of cruel like God to put these commandments in place, knowing that we could never keep him. But I say, it's kind of loving of God to show us our need of a savior instead of leaving us in our ignorance. This is what Jesus meant when he said the world would hate him. He was going to testify that they were evil. And what you need to understand 
is the message of Jesus Christ is offensive. The starting point of the gospel is that we are sinners. It's not catchy. It's not hip. It's not cool. You're never going to make it trendy. Yes, Jesus came preaching the message of love, but first, he came preaching a message of condemnation. He came declaring that the world had not lived up to God's standards, which is perfection. And I know it's not popular to say this, but the message of Jesus Christ is divisive. But it might not be divisive where you think it is. It's not divisive between Christians and non-Christians, believers and non-believers. It's divisive between God and all men. Because we have all sinned. We have all sinned. We've all fallen short, and we are all dead in our trespasses and sins. So if there's no hope in keeping the law, and we're condemned, what hope do we have? Turn over to Romans 8, uh, verse 1. I know you've heard this before, but let's hear it again with fresh ears. It says, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Salvation is not found in obedience to the law. That's because we have sinned and we have broken the law. But what you, need, what you need to understand is that if you are in Jesus, there's forgiveness. However, it doesn't mean that your punishment just disappears. It's not like if you go bankrupt and all that money you owe to creditors and debt collectors just goes away. No, God is still righteous and holy, and he punishes sin. Your sin will be punished. But he doesn't punish you. He punishes Jesus. Jesus did not come to abolish punishment. He came to take punishment. The glory of Jesus Christ is that he came to bridge that divide between God and man. And this is where the message of love comes in. Jesus Christ displayed that ultimate act of love by sacrificing himself on the cross for our sins. God's standard is perfect, and although we could never live up to that standard, Jesus could, and he did on our behalf. So, if adherence to God's commands doesn't make us righteous, you may be wondering, well, why do we need to try so hard to keep them? And that's a reasonable question. You know, if I can have my salvation and still do what I want, then why am I striving so hard to be holy? We could talk about this all day, but I just want to give you four reasons why. First, this kind of mentality shows a deficiency in the understanding of how corrupt sin is, and how good the blessings of God are. 
You see, you, you hear people say this all the time, you know, I became a Christian, and after I did that, you know, I gave up a life of partying and drinking and sleeping around, and I don't cheat on my taxes, and I'll get in fights, and, you know, I'm not minimizing the transformation in anyone's life, but no one's going to, like, think this guy's a genius for turning from his life, headed for destruction, turning toward a life of the kingdom. Um, it'd be like if you, you give a homeless man a million dollars, and he goes out and he says, you know, I used to be homeless, but now I don't sleep on the street anymore. I don't eat food from the dumpster. And you'll say, well, well, of course you don't. That would be ridiculous. Why would you? God knows what is best for us, and he knows the best way to live life. Following God's commands puts you in harmony with him. You have communion with him. You have a relationship with him. It puts you in a posture to receive his blessings. Everything you need for life and godliness. And you can clearly see his blessings in your life and how he is using you. Second, obedience to God's law is evidence of salvation. Notice I didn't say obedience to God's law earns your salvation. It's, it's evidence of it. If you drive by a house and you see toys and bicycles in the front yard, that's, that's evidence that children live there. It's not proof. But it's a good bet. It's, a reasonable, it's reasonable to, understand, to think that children live there. 1 John 5, 3-4 says, For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments. And his commandments are not burdensome. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. You see, good works are a byproduct of the Holy Spirit living inside you. And we know that those who are saved have the Holy Spirit. And you know what else is a byproduct of having the Holy Spirit live inside you? It's conviction. Conviction from sin. Now, I, I deliberately use the word conviction and not guilt. Because feeling guilty about your sins and feeling conviction are two different things. If you are a child of God, you should not feel guilty about your sin because you are not guilty. Jesus Christ took your guilt and he paid the punishment. You are no longer guilty. But conviction, on the other hand, is the loving hand of the Holy Spirit guiding us back to righteousness, guiding us back to the path that God has for us. You see, guilt brings condemnation and hopelessness but conviction breeds repentance. And we know that in Jesus, repentance always finds forgiveness. John 14, 15 says, this is Jesus talking, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. He didn't say, if you love me, you have to keep my commandments to prove it. No. He says, if you love Jesus, obedience will follow. It's a natural outpouring. Does this mean you will obey every command? No. Does this mean that you will never struggle with sin? No. But if you don't see evidence of sanctification in your life, and you have no desire to overcome your sin, it might be that you don't have the Holy Spirit living inside you, and you're not truly saved. Conviction of sin comes from the Holy Spirit. 1 John 3, 7 says, anyone who practices righteousness is righteous. That word practicing, it indicates a pattern 
an effort, a desire towards holiness. Third, following God's commands redeems the world around us and brings glory to God. Matthew 5, 13 through 16 says this, You are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand. It gives light to all the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Salt brings flavor back to food. It extracts the good qualities where they're lacking. And light reveals what's hidden in the darkness. And these are examples that highlight how we should be how we should benefit the world around us. Why should we do this? For our own accolades? For our own self-righteousness? No, what does it say? For the glory of God. Fourth, and finally, why why do we obey God's commands? It's because our old self has been crucified. To a certain extent, it's not possible to be a follower of Jesus and ignore his commands. Look at Romans 6, 1 through 7. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Were we buried, therefore, with him by baptism into the death in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead, By the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like this, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like this. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we could no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. So there are two ways to be saved. One, obey God's law perfectly from the time you're born to the time you die. But since that's not possible for us, the second way is to have someone obey God's law perfectly for you and then to have that person pay the penalty for your sins. So if you're here today and you're ready to stop earning your salvation through your good works, which will never happen, would you surrender your life today to the one who can do what the law was never intended to do? We have people available at prayer point in the back to your left. If you have questions, if you want people to pray with you. Let's pray.